This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody, it's Lon Seidman. It's time once again for your weekly wrap-up. This is my weekly show where I just talk about a whole bunch of stuff, and you can see some of the things we're going to be talking about today, including securing your NAS devices, a potential new NVIDIA Shield. I've got an appearance coming up in September along with a panel discussion. Uh, We have an update on my VR headset adventure. I bought something on the Epic Game Store. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about why I protect my copyright on YouTube. This is an important topic, and I think it's important for independent creators to assert their ownership, just like the big uh, folks do. And I'll talk about a specific incident that happened last week, just to give you my side of the story. I will also continue our discussion about subscription services and how content has never been free. And we'll take a look inside a very sophisticated telephone scam happening outside of the U.S., but preying on people here in the United States. Lots to talk about now, so let's get to it. Now, before we begin, we have a bunch of new supporters to thank. They include Mike Talbert, who made a gold-level contribution last week. Uh, We have a new member on the YouTube membership program, Tom Simpson. Welcome, Tom. And then we had a bunch of super chats from last week's premiere of the wrap-up, Greg Blankman, Amda Brown, and JP. I want to thank everyone for their contributions here to the channel this week, everyone who's been contributing on an ongoing basis, and to those of you who watch on a regular basis too, because all of those things equal channel growth. So let's take a look now at the week in review. On the Extras channel, we had two unboxings. Uh, The first is the new Lenovo ThinkBook 13S. That will be reviewed uh, probably tomorrow or Wednesday. And we also got a look at the Synology DS620 Slim. This is a very small six-bay NAS that we reviewed on the main channel Sunday morning. Along with that review, we had reviews of the Samsung Odyssey Plus Mixed Reality Headset, the new low-cost Wise Smart Bulbs, And we looked at how game controllers will be supported on the new iPad and iOS 13 operating systems. You can now use your official Xbox and PS4 controllers there, uh, which was not possible before. So you can see all of those videos linked down below in the master playlist. And I'm excited to announce that I've been invited as a guest to Retro World Expo. I think this is like the first con that I've really been invited to, so I'm very excited about this. I will be having a panel on FPGAs and retro game replication. So those uh, fancy consoles from Analog will be talked about along with the Mr. Project, of course. And there'll be some other great retro gaming YouTubers in attendance as well, including My Life in Gaming and ReRes, two of my favorites that I'm looking forward to meet. And I'm sure a few others will be coming as well. They have a Facebook page where you can follow all the announcements as to who is getting added to the roster there, but I'm very excited to be a part of this. It takes place at the Hartford Convention Center, September 28th and 29th. Plenty of parking. Definitely check it out if you're able to go. And now it's time for a couple of things in the news that caught my eye. And this note from Synology is important. If you're using one of their NAS devices, they are urging all users to take immediate action to protect themselves from a ransomware attack. Apparently, there are some hackers who have been out scouting the internet for publicly accessible Synology devices. 
Uh, what you can do, of course, is poke a hole in your router and forward a port over to your Synology's control panel so you can log into it remotely. A lot of people do this, and it's kind of a risky thing to do if you don't have uh, your Synology behind a VPN, for example. And what's happening is, is that people are going out looking for these devices. They are taking the admin username that most people apparently use and then run a dictionary attack against it. So this is not a vulnerability per se in the operating system. It's just that they uh, guess that everyone's going to be using admin for the default username, and they try a whole bunch of different word and letter and number combinations until they hit, and when they log in, they can then execute a script to uh, infect your uh, device with ransomware, and that's been the process here. So Synology has some suggestions for you. Uh, the first, of course, is to have a complex and strong password that would be very hard to guess with a dictionary attack. Uh, they also suggest creating a new account in the administrator group and to disable the default admin account because if it's admin, it gives them another uh, easy point of entry there. And if they have to guess the username and the password, it's going to be a lot less likely you'll be compromised. Uh, they also suggest to use auto block in the control panel to block IP addresses. Uh, that have too many failed attempts, and they suggest running the security advisor, which will go through your passwords and make sure there's no weak password in your system that another user might have created. Uh, but my suggestion really is to take your Synology device and not put it in front of your router, put in a VPN server, and have the Synology sit on your local network accessible only to people that can log in with the VPN. Uh, that's probably the best way to go here, but if you have to keep your device exposed, definitely follow these warnings here and protect yourself. And it looks like there's a new version of the NVIDIA Shield on the way, and potentially more than that. Uh, there is a new SKU that's been filed with the FCC, and this is in line with the new updated processor that NVIDIA came up with for the Nintendo Switch. The Shield uses the same chip, so I think we're going to see a refresh here, but not a real performance increase. Uh, 9 to 5 Google also has some information on a possible dongleized version of the NVIDIA Shield, something that would hang off the back of your TV. And that might be kind of cool, having that level of power in a very small and compact device. We'll have to keep an eye on this and see what's developing. And now it's time for some updates of things that I previously talked about here on the channel. The first involves my VR adventure. Uh, just to bring you up to speed, I wanted to upgrade my HTC Vive, the original to something with a higher resolution. And this has led me down a significantly expensive rabbit hole as I've been experimenting with a whole bunch of different things. Uh, so the first thing that happened is I bought the Valve Index VR headset. It's one of the more expensive ones out there, uh, but it has a much higher resolution than the one I was using. And I noticed that immediately when I put it on. The problem I had, though, with the Valve Index was that I was getting a lot of what they call geometric distortion, and apparently it's something related to the lenses inside of the headset and how my eyes and my biology, I guess, uh, seem to work in interpreting the images coming out of the headset. And as a result, when I'd be looking at something like a rectangle on the display, it would get all wobbly as I moved my head around. Very disconcerting. I could not resolve the issue. I got a replacement headset, still had the same problem. And I went back to my original Vive, but really missed that super high resolution. Uh, so we tried out the Odyssey Plus from Samsung, which we uh, reviewed this past week. But I also picked up during the Prime Day sale uh, the Vive Pro, which is kind of the upgraded version of my original headset, because it was on sale. These things are ridiculously overpriced. And even with its $200 discount to make it about a $599 device, it's still way too expensive. 
but it works with all the stuff I already had set up for sensors and it's been a pretty seamless transition. However, I did not like the audio on it. Uh, so if you take a look on here, you can see it had headphones attached to the side, but they sounded like garbage. And I was coming from a pair of these Sennheiser headphones, which are just the most beautiful sounding things in the world. Uh, so it was very hard to get used to that. So the good thing is, is that they do allow you to pull the headphones off. But to get a headphone jack on here, I had to go out and get a USB-C to headphone adapter, had to take apart a portion of the headset to pop in that adapter, and now I'm good. So I think overall this has been a, a good replacement for what I had, and I'm fairly happy with it. Uh, the only issue I'm having now is that the headset itself is a little bit too wide for my head, and as a result I'm getting light bleeding in from the sides here. Uh, so I did uh, ask around on Reddit and somebody pointed me at some replacement foam uh, heads, uh, foam things here that I can get to rectify the situation. These actually replace very easily. It's just Velcro here. So I've got those coming in and I'll give you an update next week as to which ones worked for me. Uh, but so far, this is good. It's not a perfect upgrade, uh, but it's better than what I had. But this really does speak to the problem with PC virtual reality. It's just so complicated. There's so many different things involved with it. Nothing works perfectly, and it's no wonder that it hasn't been adopted uh, at the rate that people were hoping it would be. I'm going to be doing a consumer overview of VR just as soon as I get a chance to try out the PlayStation VR. My target are going to be people that are shopping for VR for Christmas presents, and I'm going to make some recommendations as to what they should be thinking about, because this is getting worse, not better on the PC side, even though the software is amazing. So it's a very complicated thing. I just love virtual reality because it's such a new thing, uh, and one of the things that I have been not bored about here on the channel, but, but just kind of frustrated with is that we haven't seen a lot of new, new things in the last year or two. And VR is really an area where I see game developers really pushing the limits and trying all these different types of gameplay to see what sticks. And it's a really exciting time uh, because there isn't a genre that just works there universally like you might see on traditional PC or console games. So this has been a really fun thing for me. It's not all that interesting to you, the viewers, based on the viewership of these videos, but I do think the uh, consumer guide might be something useful for holiday shoppers, and that is what I'm going to be working on. Let me know your thoughts down in the comments below. Now, I also made my first purchase on the Epic Game Store this weekend just to see what it was all about because there was a game, once again exclusive to that store, uh, called the Tetris Effect, which was a very highly regarded VR Tetris experience that I was eager to check out. And the funny thing is, is that when you buy this exclusive title on the Epic Store, it has to launch in Steam. So you have to go to Settings and then click on Launch in Steam VR. That then pulls up Steam and then you can play the game. It's just kind of ridiculous that we have this exclusivity thing going on in the PC game world. I know it's been talked about ad nauseum here and in other places, but I think this is just a great example of the absurdity of the whole thing. Uh, you can buy this game, but to play it, you have to go back to the competing platform to actually get it to load up. Uh, but that's how it works, and it's just not good. Uh, but it did give me the opportunity to kind of poke around on the game store a little bit more. Uh, what I don't like about it is that, first of all, there's no reviews. So you have no idea what you're getting yourself into unless you look at uh, some of the mainstream reviewers out there or maybe check out some YouTube videos. I do like seeing on Steam... Uh, the reaction from users. And yes, it can be gamed and all those things that can happen, but generally I have found the Steam's mostly positive to overwhelmingly positive to mostly negative reviews or the mixed reviews uh, to be very accurate as to the experience that I'll have with the game. And it's not good not to have that important community feature on there. 
Additionally, there are no wish lists because one of the things that I love about Steam is that if a game is uh, something I might be interested in but not willing to spend 60 bucks for, I'll get an email when it goes on sale at a later time. Uh, so that's how I picked up um, just the other day uh, Ace Combat, which went from like $60 to 30 something during the Steam sale. Got an email notifying me of that price change. It was great to be able to go and grab it at the time it went on sale. That is not as part of the Epic Game Store at the moment. And there are no community pages where you have forums and other things going on about the game where you can often get some better information about stuff. So they've got a long way to go here uh, to make this store relevant. I think what's happening, though, the reason why they're so aggressive right now is because uh, Fortnite is delivered through this Epic Games Store. And they've got a lot of eyeballs on Fortnite because it's still a very popular game. But I'm sure that they know you can't stay popular forever. And at some point, Fortnite is going to fizzle out or at least fade. And they want to make sure they can capture as many customers as possible while Fortnite is still hot. And that's why they've been so aggressive. But they really need to make the store an equivalent to, or at least a competitor to, uh, Steam and all the things that make Steam what it is. Because it's not just the ability to buy things. It's the community component that is largely lacking uh, in the Epic Store at the moment. But hopefully, uh, they'll come around and we'll see more consumer choice. But right now, I don't like this exclusivity thing, nor the store itself. Now, this next topic involves the protection of my copyright and a response to something uh, that occurred last week during the premiere of the wrap-up. Now, as many of you know, I like to premiere this show every uh, Monday night at 7 p.m. whenever I am able to do so. And what I like about doing the premiere is that I can connect with all of you and we can have a shared experience while we watch the video together and chat about the topics in the chat window. It's a great uh, virtual live thing that I have really come to enjoy. And it's a great, again, a great way just to connect to all of you. Uh, But last week it wasn't as fun because another channel uh, sent in a horde of people to try to disrupt our chat uh, because of a content ID claim I made against that channel earlier in the day. And I wanted to give you my side of the story uh, because I think it's not going to be the last time that this happens. And it's important, I think, for independent creators to assert the ownership of their content uh, just as much as it is for larger uh, media conglomerates out there. And all too often, we are, you know, often the victims of false claims and everything else. But many times claims are, in fact, valid. And this was one of those instances where I had to make a tough call but I do need to protect the investment that I make in this content because it's important for uh, this business to grow and I can't just give everything away and it's even worse when people take without asking and that is what happened here. So let me give you an overview as to what occurred. So a couple of weeks ago, we reviewed the iPod Touch here on the channel and I decided to review the iPod Touch after my review of the 9.7 inch iPad was so well received. It was actually a very good performing video for the channel And I figured, hey, if that one did well, let's pick up the cheap iPhone alternative and see how that would do. Uh, So I went out and bought the iPod Touch. We unboxed it on the Extras channel, as you can see here. And then we did a full review on the main channel. And the folks that uh, grabbed my content took the unboxing video and then ran their own voiceover over that unboxing. So they weren't critiquing my unboxing ability, which would have been perhaps a fair use if done properly. Uh, Instead, they were just talking about the product itself. They didn't have the product, nor did they buy the product, so they figured they would go out and find some footage that they can use to put under their discussion. And that is what transpired here. Now, before you say, oh, Lon, what's the big deal? It's just an unboxing video. You shot it with your cell phone. The reality is there is a cost involved with everything I do here on the channel, 
especially when we buy the products that we review and we buy a lot of them on this channel. So let me just run through the math here real quick so you can get a feel for what a typical review might cost us if we don't get a loaner sent to us. Uh, so here we had to buy the iPod Touch for about $200. Uh, the unboxing video only earned $2.83 of YouTube revenue, so that certainly wasn't a moneymaker for me. Uh, and then the review itself only earned about $26 in revenue from YouTube. Uh, now, when I was done with the unboxing and the review, we sold the item on my store for $119. I believe that is net of shipping costs to the buyer. Uh, we had nobody buy it at Amazon through the affiliate link, so we're pretty much running at a net loss here of $52.27. Now, this doesn't happen every time I buy something to review on the channel, but it does happen uh, more often than not. However, my calculation in this cost is that over time, this video may do better, especially as we near the holiday season and parents start looking at these as potential gifts for their children. Uh, that's kind of the market for this, and I think that's when I might see an uptick in traffic. I just had a comment today on that video, actually, from a father who was thinking about buying one for his kid, and he appreciated the review because it didn't just trash it. It actually showed what it did. Uh, so I'm hopeful that we'll see a better return on this in the future. And this is often the case with a lot of what I do here on the channel. It takes time uh, to make the money back on each individual review, but eventually it gets there. Now, our friends from Brazil that took the content uh, had over 69,000 views on that video. And the CPM in Brazil right now, the cost per 1,000 view, uh, cost per 1,000 views that go to the creator when the video is uploaded is about $2.34 right now. So they earned an estimated $161.46. Uh, that number could be higher depending on where in the world their viewers are. If they were coming in from the U.S. and watching uh, the video in Portuguese, uh, they will see U.S. advertisements and likely would be seeing a higher CPM delivered back to these creators. Uh, so as I'm looking at this video to determine what to do with it, uh, I'm like, whoa, they got 69,000 views of my content and earned a lot more than I did. None of us are getting rich off of this, but nonetheless, there's a principle here, which is uh, they did nothing uh, to basically make value here other than taking my content and doing a voiceover on it. And that is not a fair use of my work. And they're making money off of my work. And I have the ability to make a decision, uh, which is I can issue a copyright strike, which would have been well within my rights to do so. On YouTube, if you make a DMCA takedown, it results in a copyright strike against the person who uploaded your content. I, however, have the ability also to instead do content ID claims. That is different than a strike because the video doesn't get taken down. It stays up. Uh, but in this instance, I would earn future revenue from that video uh, versus the person who uploaded it. And I don't take whatever revenue they already earned, that 160 bucks or whatever they made off of it is theirs to keep. But anything rolling after last Monday when that claim was issued uh, is something that would go to me, but they would still benefit from having the video up. It's very different than a copyright strike, and there's no strike against the channel, no penalty, nothing. Now, I could have just issued a strike, which is what I usually do when people re-upload content but typically, when it's another creator, I give them the courtesy and say, you know what, I'm going to do a content ID strike, or content ID claim, I should say. I'll go in and maybe have a conversation with the creator and tell them why I did what I did. And if we could work out some kind of licensing arrangement or some kind of arrangement in the future where we can share content in a way that's amicable for both parties, I'm happy to have that discussion. But you can't just take stuff without asking, especially when you're earning money uh, off of my work. I just find that very offensive and certainly 
not a professional thing to do among two professional creators, we would hope. Now, it's going to get very complicated soon because uh, more creators now have access to these matching tools. Uh, YouTube has a tool that will find all of the re-uploads of your content, but they don't give creators the option to do a revenue take. It's only a takedown. So I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about this as more creators gain access to this tool and start issuing uh, copyright strikes against each other versus the flexibility I have uh, within the content ID system. But nonetheless, this is what goes on, and I think it's going to become uh, certainly more pronounced as things progress here. Uh, just to give you an idea as to how many takedowns I do uh, per year, I took a look at my stats. Uh, in 2017, I issued 122 takedowns. Uh, in 2018, 196. And this is mostly, almost 99% uh, people re-uploading my content onto these spam accounts, and they're putting affiliate links on those videos and hoping to pick up search traffic. And by the way, that is my core business. 80% of my, my traffic comes from search and algorithmic recommendation. So if these videos are being uploaded with the same metadata but with their uh, affiliate link, it could really harm my business. So that was uh, why I was able to gain access to these tools. And I'm able now to do straight up takedowns of videos that are just essentially re-uploads for affiliate links. And those I just do the takedown, issue the strike, because there are many, many other creators I'm finding who are also having these videos included on these. Uh, last year, I had to do 196 takedowns. So this problem's getting worse. Uh, this year, just halfway through the year, essentially, I'm up to 122. Uh, but again, if it's a fellow creator who is doing something they shouldn't, I'm not going to do the takedown and the strike. I'm going to do the content ID and have a conversation. And that's often how I like to have these things end. So I appreciate everybody hearing me out on this topic. I don't think we'll be seeing the trolls again this week, but who knows? I just wanted you to hear uh, my side of the story. I don't seek these things out, but when things like this occur, I have to defend my work. It's what is important for my business, and I will continue to do so in the future. So now let's move on to a Q&A from you, the viewers. And our first question, actually a response comes in from David Lewis, and this was in regards to my talk about subscription services last week. Uh, he doesn't think everyone is floating around on a pile of money like Scrooge McDuck. I do agree with him on that. Not everybody can afford to buy every video service. The world doesn't operate like that. And we're seeing a major transition now for the motion picture industry, primarily television, uh, away from free ad-supported network TV shows to things that are being made available by subscription with a direct relationship with the studio producing them. This is a very different model than has ever existed, but I think it has some advantages. First of all, we have to all acknowledge that content has never been free. Uh, those network TV shows cost money to make. They need to get a certain amount of viewership on them to have enough value to sell that viewership to advertisers. And that is how the industry worked. But remember, back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, uh, you would get tens of millions of viewers on a single network TV show. Those numbers have been cut dramatically as our choices have expanded. And with these subscription services, it's further eating into the free advertising model so these audiences are smaller per piece of content, and they had to figure out a different way to make that work, and that, of course, is direct-to-consumer subscriptions. Uh, the benefits, though, are many. They have bigger budgets for the productions. Uh, the new Star Wars show, for example, has the budget of a motion picture, about $120 million for one season. That's pretty remarkable for a TV show, right? 
Uh, there's less risk for these studios because they can amortize the cost of these productions over time based on expected subscriber revenue. They don't have to rely on the ratings in one season being good enough to go to season two. They know what it's going to cost. They know they can afford to do it. And they can afford to invest a season or two in a show if it means a future return, perhaps when that show hits season three. Uh, There's been a lot of talk that Breaking Bad never would have become the show that it did had the first couple of seasons not appeared on Netflix and got people into it. So there's some argument here that that risk, or lack thereof, or less risk, I should say, there's no lack of risk, but the less risk uh, means that we'll see more experimentation. We are certainly seeing a lot more niche genre content. The Star Trek example is a great one. Uh, We're getting a Star Wars TV show. All sorts of things that probably never would have worked on network TV are working here. Uh, CBS even put Star Trek Discovery up on broadcast for one week just to see how it did. I don't think it did all that well as a broadcast show, but it's certainly uh, done well for them on the subscription side. And I think this, on subscriptions, we finally get the a la carte selection uh, that we've wanted for many, many years out of the cable company. I pay 50 bucks a month for the TV side of my cable television, and I'm paying mostly for things I don't watch, like ESPN, for example. I don't, I don't like sports all that much. I don't watch that much sports content. I certainly don't watch the four ESPN channels that I get, uh, but I have to pay for it. Under this new subscription model, that is no longer the case. I pay for the networks that I want, and I can stop watching them anytime I want. So, for example, with Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard, when those shows are off CBS All Access, I can halt my subscription until they pop back on again. I have that choice, which I don't have currently with my cable subscription. Uh, here's some examples of where spending on the studio sides are going. Uh, Netflix has spent, if you look here on their in-production costs, in 2018... They spent $3.3 billion on new content. Uh, they borrowed a lot of that money, but again, they're amortizing that over the course of uh, their subscriber revenue here. So they're able to really push out a lot of high-quality stuff. And i got to say, that season three of Stranger Things uh, renewed my love for Netflix. I think it's been a great season. I'm about halfway through. High, high-quality stuff. Uh, worth my subscription dollars, perhaps. Netflix is getting a little bit more expensive than I would like, but this is where that money is going. They're putting a lot of it into custom content. They also spent $14 billion last year on licensing other people's content, but they're going to be having a harder and harder time securing those rights as those studios go direct to consumer. Amazon spent $7 billion on video and music content, uh, they did $1.7 billion on video and music in the first quarter alone. So they are spending a lot, too, producing some great stuff over on Amazon. And here's a story on the Star Wars uh, show where it's revealed that each, but each episode was about $15 million for a total of at least $120 million. And they're spending that on us. We're going to get some great content uh, out of these studio buys, which I don't think traditional networks would have taken the risk with, especially if they weren't sure what the audience levels would be. Now, insofar as cost and affordability, I did decide to take a look at my personal household budget on music and TV content, and I'm including my internet cost with that. Uh, so right now, I'm spending $81.95 on the internet portion of my Comcast account. Uh, I'm spending so much because I have their blast service that delivers faster downstream speeds, so I get about 300 megabits down and a paltry 10 megabits up. It stinks, and I can't get any faster than that, but that is what I am paying for my uh, internet connection, which I need for all the stuff that we're constantly firing back and forth on the internet. Uh, And then I've got a package for TV. It's like their digital basic with HBO, 
and I'm spending $49 for that portion of my cable TV. Now, the reason why my TV portion is so low is because I've got that HD home run in the closet, and I got rid of all of the Comcast subscription hardware uh, here at the house. I have no Comcast boxes, nothing. So I don't pay anything beyond uh, just the TV shows that I'm watching. And I suspect if you looked at your budget and if you have those boxes around your house, uh, you're going to save a lot of money by dropping Comcast and going to a YouTube TV or a Hulu TV because oftentimes about 30 bucks a month or more is tied up in hardware rental fees. And that's how they make all their money on TV, by the way. Uh, I've got YouTube Premium, which I'm still paying $10 for. That's gone up to $12.99, I believe. But I am a grandfathered YouTube Red subscriber. And I get, of course, my YouTube ad free. I get some of the premium shows like the Karate, Cobra, Karate Kid Cobra Kai thing. Uh, and I get YouTube Music, which is essentially a music subscription service, all as part of that deal. So that was pretty good. Uh, my Netflix subscription is pricey at 16 bucks a month for the 4K HDR version. I'm paying 99 cents a month for Hulu right now. They had a Black Friday special. I haven't really watched all that much Hulu, so I got to figure out if I'm going to keep that uh, when that subscription period ends. But buck a month isn't bad there. Uh, and then I've got an Apple Music family account, uh, which is $14.99 a month. I'll get to that in a minute. And I also put Amazon Prime in here because I am using my Prime account uh, for other things, but I'm also watching the TV shows on there. My kids really like the kids show selection that they have on Amazon Prime. And I think my household budget here is probably not all that different uh, than other household budgets that are currently paying for cable and a subscription fee or two. I am certainly aware that people often cannot afford any of these things, uh, but I would say that for a lot of folks who have a cable TV subscription, this is probably close to about what they're paying monthly for their entertainment budget or more. I know people that are paying more for exactly the same thing I have because they have all the cable boxes. Uh, now, what I started looking at was, could I reduce my cost by stripping out the Comcast TV portion of my entertainment budget here? And I found that I really couldn't. Um, I went out and started pricing things out with YouTube TV and with Hulu, and I'd be losing HBO and getting back some of the same channels I already have. So I'm actually getting uh, a good amount of cable channels plus HBO for what I would pay for a YouTube TV or a Hulu without HBO. And having the local channels in my area are very important to me because I can't pick them up over the air. So I think I'm going to be able to add Disney Plus and do a partial year subscription to CBS All Access when the Star Trek shows are on uh, for pretty much the same budget I have now by removing the Apple Music Family subscription that was made unnecessary by the YouTube Premium subscription. Uh, and I think every household has to kind of go through this budget on their own to figure out uh, what works best. I also noticed that if I decided to drop the TV portion of my Comcast, my internet charges go from $81 to I think $96 a month, a significant increase because they dropped this bundle discount, if you will. Uh, so that was even another reason to stick with Comcast because I have no other choice for internet right now but them. Uh, so it's just one of those things where I'm kind of trapped with them for a little bit longer. But I think I can make all of this work. And I would love to hear in my Q&A for you this week about your budget for this stuff. Because you know what? We don't have to pay for these services. We don't have to pay for entertainment if we don't want to. Uh, but we do because we like some of the shows that are on. I would love to know what you're budgeting and how you're looking at maybe changing your consumer habits based on the cost of these things so that you can accommodate the things that you want and get rid of the things that you're not using. Let me know down in the comments below.
Now, last week we had a Q&A about whether or not people actually fall for some of those computer tech support scams, and we've talked about uh, those a lot over the years. But now these scams are getting more sophisticated, and a viewer wrote in who wanted to remain anonymous with a crazy story about some of the new tactics these people are doing. Now, I want to make clear up front that uh, the viewer who wrote in with this did not fall for this scam, but played along to see what they would have him do, uh, and he had them convinced that he was actually falling for it. Uh, so it began with an automated call from the quote-unquote Social Security Administration warning them that they are canceling his Social Security number because of a scam. And he had to push a button on his phone to be connected with somebody. So immediately here, they're sending out probably thousands of robocalls. And then every time somebody hits a button, it connects them to the call center in some country who knows where uh, to try to perpetuate the rest of the scam. Uh, so he pressed one and was told that there were 24 fraudulent accounts opened up on his social security number in Nevada. And this might be credible to some people because we have the Equifax thing that's out in the news right now. So these scammers will be taking advantage of the news and convincing people that their stolen information is being used to open up false accounts. So it's not out of the ordinary, perhaps, to get a call like that, unfortunately. Uh, The people on the phone wanted to know his street address, where he banked, and the approximate amounts in his checking and savings accounts. But they reassured him that this was not a scam, right? Uh, And they strictly told him not to give them the account numbers. They only wanted the banking information to confirm which account was really his so that they could protect the monies before they closed the account off on him. Uh, So then, after he gave them that information, and apparently there was enough money in the account to make him interesting to them, uh, they then asked him uh, to provide a phone number for their local police department and give it to them. Uh, He then went back and forth with them as to what the number was. Uh, And then when they were satisfied that it was the right number, they... Uh, had somebody call with a spoofed caller ID of that number who sounded like a cop. And he said he kind of had that command presence. He didn't uh, sound like somebody with an accent, for example. It had a very, you know, real authoritative presence. And they told him that there was a warrant in his name and that he would have to take out some money to prove that it wasn't him. Uh, And then they wanted him to go drive to his bank and take the money out, believe it or not. At this point, you should probably be thinking that this is going to be a scam. And many people, unfortunately, keep going here because the cop is telling them what to do. Uh, And what they were going to probably have them do was take all this money out and then buy up some gift cards and take a picture of them. And that's how they usually steal the money from these people. It's like iTunes gift cards and other kinds of gift cards that they're able to uh, get people to convert their money into. And that is usually how these things go. Um, So they even said... Uh, when you're at the bank, uh, tell the teller that it's a family emergency or something and don't let them on that there's a scam going on. <laughs> Crazy stuff. You can read all this by pausing it. I'll try to post this somewhere as well so you can see what goes on here. Uh, but I guess as they went through this process, they figured him out. Um, he also provided the sheriff's office address. He works at a police department as his home address. And when he did that, they told him that he should shove his uh, plane ticket to Vegas up his you-know-what. So that was the end of that story. But this is what's going on these days, and people are vulnerable. Uh, And you can see how somebody who's elderly or somebody who's just not thinking clearly might fall for something like this, and it's something that is getting more and more sophisticated, and it's very difficult for law enforcement to reach these people because they're often outside of the country and really not accessible to them, and it's just getting worse and worse as time goes on here. All right, enough about scams. Our pick of the week this week is actually a copyright-related thing, and it's on the Lawful Masses YouTube channel about the CASE Act of 2019. 
Uh, this is an effort to provide a small claims process for copyright issues, and it works kind of in two ways because you as a small creator uh, might have the ability now to go after a larger company for taking your work in a way that doesn't require you to go out and hire a lawyer and file a federal lawsuit. It's another avenue you can take. Uh, it also makes it so that if you are getting hit with frivolous claims, uh, you have some recourse through this process to uh, not only win your case without a lot of cost, but also prevent the person who is uh, filing those claims against you from filing claims against others as well. You can actually knock out a frivolous claim action uh, in a group, apparently, based on uh, what happens within this court. There's a lot of problems with it. Uh, it's not perfect. In fact, you can opt out of it as both the plaintiff and the defendant and go back into the regular court process. But I think it is a step, perhaps, in the right direction for small and independent creators and photographers and others who are often dealing with uses of their content that doesn't amount to $50 million, but might uh, result in a loss, in my case, of $150 or so, or a couple thousand dollars. I believe the maximum award within this court will be 30,000 bucks. And the Lawful Masses here has a very good explainer as to what this is all about. Uh, if you haven't checked out his channel before, he does a lot of these copyright stories. Even though he wears goofy hats, he is a copyright attorney that does this for a living. And it's very informative, especially if you have an interest in copyright law and the uh, execution of that law being fair to small independent creators like me. So I am still planning out this week's content, but this is what I'm thinking about at this point. Uh, we're going to have the ThinkBook 13S review. Uh, this is that laptop we unboxed on the Extras channel. We're just about ready to get that review shot. Uh, we're also probably going to take a look, if uh, nothing else pops up, at the LDK Horizontal. This is another one of those lower-cost emulation handhelds that does mostly 8- and 16-bit stuff. We'll see if it's better than the Pocket Go. That's been on the list for a little while. It's right on my desk. It's got to finish it up. And I'm also hoping to get the LaserJet MFP 179 FNW shot later this week. Uh, we might have a sponsor on that video, so I'm just waiting to see if we can work out that. Uh, this is a compact color laser printer, and that's one of those things that does really well on the channel over the long term, are those printer reviews. And I know a lot of people are often looking for a color laser printer that's not too big. This one's pretty reasonably sized. I got some other stuff coming, and I'm not sure if that stuff is going to be here uh, this week or not. So if it does show up, we'll move things around. So stay tuned. You never know what's going to show up here. As I mentioned last week, I chase the shiny objects more often than not. Uh, so that is likely what will happen again this week. Now, if you want to support the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and make a monthly or a one-time contribution to the channel. We also have our Plex arrangement going on still, where if you sign up for a free Plex account, no credit card required, we get a small uh, commission for that. You can also sign up for a Plex Pass or gift it to somebody else, and we'll get a larger commission if you do that. And of course, we've got a bunch of other channels you can follow me on, the Extras channel for unboxings and supplementary content. It's actually a fun channel. You should check it out. A lot of quick hit stuff. Uh, we have the podcast, which is audio versions of this show. We have the snippets. Uh, which are portions of this show that are made into smaller videos so they can be easily shared and found on search engines and whatnot. And then we have my live stream archive, where I've got every live stream I've ever done that you can replay and watch there. There's probably tens of hours of content of me fiddling with stuff that you can watch me do. So lots of good stuff there uh, on our uh, many channels that we offer. Now, if you like what I do, you can click on the notification bell and you'll be sent a notification whenever I upload something or go live. And of course, we have my email list, which is very infrequent at lon.tv slash email, 
We have the Facebook page at lon.tv slash Facebook where you can see some things that I post from time to time. We've been having a lot of fun in the Facebook group. We've got over 700 now in there. A great discussion forum for all the different things that we talk about here on the channel. It's a great way for me to connect with all of you on an ongoing basis and I get a lot of great show ideas out of that group. So definitely join it. You got to answer two questions to get in. Once you're in, you're in. So uh, do it. I'd love to hear from more of you. And then we've got my store at lon.tv slash store where I sell stuff that I've previously reviewed here on the channel. We have a store alert where you can get emailed whenever I do add things to the store. I just got rid of a bunch of stuff, but there's still more stuff on there and more stuff coming on shortly. And again, that is a one-off thing. So in the case of that iPod, for example, that was the only iPod available. When it's gone, it's gone. And most of the stuff is either brand new or real close to it because we only had it for a few weeks for the purposes of review evaluations. And that's going to do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. I want to thank you all for your continued support of the channel and everything that we're doing here. Please keep those questions and comments coming. It's very important to us to get that feedback to direct us as to where we go next with the content. And until next time, this is Lon Seidman. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters, the Four Guys with Quarters podcast, emudev.org, Tom Albrecht, Brian Parker, and Kalyan Kumar. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.